0: 1 Timothy chapter 5 is where we'll be, and we'll hit verses 17 through verse 25. Um, What we've seen Paul address so far in chapter 5 of 1 Timothy is that Paul is unpacking this Huge idea of what it means to be a church, and how he does it is he he connects it to we're like a family. Uh, We are to treat each other as brothers and sisters. We're to treat younger ladies as sisters. We're to treat younger men as brothers. As older women, we treat as mothers. As older men, we treat as fathers. And so you see this this flow from verse one and two of chapter five of this is what a family is like, and then from that you see. How do we treat those who are hurting? How do we treat those who are poor? How do we treat those who are widows? How do we pour in and, and get in their lives and help them as not as individuals that we just meet, not as coworkers, not as neighbors, but as family? How do we do that? And so everything that we see in 1 Timothy chapter 5 is how a family Operates, And so you have all these different types of people, how we serve them, how we love them as brothers and sisters. And then we see here, tacked on the end of chapter 5, how the church treats the leaders. And so I don't know if you know this, but I'm a part of this family as well. All right. Um, a lot of churches, they treat the pastor as he's not really a part of the family. He's on the outside. He's hired hand. We're so glad that we have him. Now we can tell him what to do and make sure he makes us laugh on Sunday mornings and make sure he can sing in the choir. His wife can and wear the jean skirt and the Noah's Ark dress or whatever. And that's what's expected of her. And so we, we have all these things that we, we want. And that's, it's a hired hand. It's a hired position. But I got to tell you here at Integrity, I do not feel that way. I feel like integrity is a part of, we're part of a family together, and I am in this as well. And so what Paul does is he realizes this is a tension. So he's talking to his young disciple, Timothy, who's gone in, he's planted this church, or Paul has in Ephesus, and now his young disciple, Timothy, goes in and begins to pastor this congregation in Ephesus. And what he's telling him let them treat you as a family. Let them, let them treat you as you're a part of their family. So there's things that we want to do for widows, but there's also things that we want to do for pastors. And I got to tell you, this is something that I believe is missing a lot in specifically the South. What you see in the South are the hired hands. And I, I got to tell you, I... I, I um, Talk to a lot of different church planners. Um, I'm in a network, uh, church planning, a couple of different church planning networks, and I talk to different church planners and pastors. And it seems almost all the time, once a week or so, I'll call a guy and he is just weary, and he is tired, and he's exhausted. And there's been times, I've called a guy before and he is weeping on the phone and crying because he's feeling the pain of ministry, and he feels alone. And I got to tell you, this is one of the loneliest places that you could be if your church really doesn't see you as family. Let me, let me just give you a couple of staggering statistics about a pastor and his health, all right? So let's just look at the pastor's health. Over 23% of, a pa- of pastors report that they are content in Christ in their church and in their home. 23%. 90% work between the hours between 55 and 75 hours a week. 50% don't believe that they even meet the demands of the job. The other 50% are lying. 70% feel grossly underpaid. 90% feel like they are untrained or unqualified to lead. 90% were surprised because pastoral ministry was different than what they thought it would be. 70% of pastors constantly fight depression. 70% of us are depressed. 50% of pastors are so discouraged that they would leave the ministry altogether if they would find a vocation outside of being a pastor. 50%. Let's look at the guy's marriage and family. 80% of pastors believe that ministry has negatively affected their families. 80% of spouses believe their husbands are overworked. 80% of spouses feel left out and underappreciated by the church. How about his relationships inside the church? 70% of pastors feel like they don't have a close friend or someone they can confide in inside the church. 40% report that they have at least one serious conflict with a member of the church at least once a month. One serious conflict at least once a month. 40%. How about ministry longevity? How long they can stick this out? 50% of pastors who are in ministry now will not be in the ministry five years from now. One of 10 pastors stay in the ministry until retirement. 4,000 churches begin each year, yet 7,000 close each year. And out of that number... 1,700 pastors leave their ministries every month. 1,700 pastors leave their ministries every single month, sometimes without calls. And so this cannot be what God has intended for this role, for these guys to be overworked, underpaid, all you know, 50% depressed, 70% depressed. And, and, and one out of 10 of us won't do this will do this until we retire but 90% of us will not do this for the rest of our lives until we retire this cannot be the way that God has set this role up and so what do we do here how do we avoid this in our own church how do we avoid this with people that we know who are in ministry how do we encourage them in the gospel and this is what Paul does here in 1st Timothy chapter 5 let's start with verse 17 it says this let the elders who rule Well, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Now in order to understand this, you have to understand what the word elder means. We've talked about this a little bit in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We worked through the qualifications of an elder. But basically an elder is a pastor. He's an overseer. He oversees the flock. And what you see, this role begins to develop in the early church in Acts. And what the early church would put the responsibility on for a pastor was to, his primary role was for teaching and preaching. It's one of, one of the major qualifiers for an elder that he would be a guy who can teach the bible. And so and what it means to rule well and this is the way that he describes it here is through preaching and teaching the bible. And this this is part of why Pre- preaching is so important that that is how the congregation becomes experts in the gospel, in the message that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect, sinless life, and that he died on a, a bloody, gruesome death on the cross, the death that we should have died. He died as a substitute for our sins in our place, and that he rose from the grave. He conquered the penalty of Satan's sin and death, and now he reigns forever over his church. And how you know that truth and how you live that truth out practically is because on Sundays when you come, we preach the gospel to you. We preach God's word to you. And so it's primarily even what Paul says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The word of God, right? And and, and he says, how can they hear without a preacher? How can we even hear the gospel without a preacher? How do we know and live out the gospel without a preacher? And so it's so important that the church has a good leader who rules well and who preaches well. And so what he says, what do we do with the guy who rules and preaches well? It's kind of funny that he says rule and preaches well because it's indicated that there are some guys who don't rule and preach well. And he talks about what what to do with those guys later on. But what about the ones that do lead well? He says... That we're there to be considered worthy of double honor. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean double pay? Well, certainly not. He's not saying they should get double the amount of an average person. He's not saying that at all. But what it actually means is it's twofold honor that's, that's what the actual word means. And it's actually the ancient understanding of this word. It would even go back to the, the late 300s where St. Christensen said that, that this meaning would be twofold honor means reverence and support. That he's, he's to give, get twofold honor. It's reverence and support, meaning respect and fair compensation. That he's to be compensated well for his job, and he's to be respected. The writer of Hebrews talks a little bit about what it means to respect a leader. He says in Hebrews 13, verse 7, it says, Remember your leaders. Those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of the way of their their life and imitate their faith. Verse 17 of Hebrews 13, he kind of echoes the same idea. He says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with what? What's the word? Joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. He's saying, look, congregation's response is to let the leader lead you with joy. And it wouldn't be something that he is begrudging about. He's not groaning and complaining about his Bride, Jesus' is bride. So there's a responsibility and qualifications and elders in First Timothy chapter three and how he's to live out, but there's here in chapter five, they're really the call of the church's life and how they are to be responsive to their pastor who rule over them well and teach them well. Now I gotta say, if it, if he's not doing those things well, it is really hard to show any respect. I remember being in um, Bible college the first year I went away to a school in upstate New York. And uh, it was a school that, it was was a very obscure location. It was kind of up in the Adirondack Mountains. And we had students from all over the inner city. And it was very interesting because we would have um, it was a pretty large school for one or two years, and um, we had a particular guy that would speak at student chapel. And I don't know if he, he's just kind of the most unaware p- person in the world, because people just did not like him. And, and it was because he had this arrogant persona, he would carry himself, and this really, it, it, was just, it would just bother you how he would carry himself. And he was the kind of guy that, I would just call him Dr. Smith, um, just to protect his name, but Dr. Smith was not a real doctor, he was an honorary doctor, but if you ever called him Pastor Smith, he would say, no, it's Doc. He would correct. He was that guy, right? He was that guy. And so no one liked him. He had these, these slick Armani suits and just looked, I mean, he looked like he'd be on Goodfellas or something like that. He was just a sketchy guy, honestly. And I remember this one time he got up and, and preached. And, and again, you could just feel the tension when they announced Dr. Smith's preaching. I was like, oh, you're right. And he gets up and he begins to preach. And then we started to notice as he's preaching, he starts to have this panicky face and starts to sweat a little bit. And then he begins to hold his stomach. And you're like, oh, no, he's getting sick. And as he's preaching, he's, he's going, uh, and then he starts to groan. And then he stops preaching and just runs out of the room. And this is like 500 people in this student chapel. He just runs out in the room. And, and as he's running out, everyone's just, you know, we're puzzled by what's happening. And then we hear what they forgot to do was turn off his lapel mic. And so, as he's making sounds that would indicate that his stomach was, in fact, upset, he's also going, Oh God, why would you let this happen to me? Oh. And we are laughing hysterically. The whole room, we, there's no sympathy for this guy whatsoever. We are laughing hysterically because we're just like, Yeah, you know, we're, he, he got it, you know, all over his Armani suit. You know, we're like, you know, we're happy that that happened. And so, the, the, the irony is we didn't respect this guy because we didn't feel like he would lead us well or teach us well. So it's just hard to show that level of respect unless that's happening. So, but, but what he's saying here and what Paul's indicating, look, let, don't let your pastor be a statistic. Don't laugh at him if he has something like that happen, right? Respect him in this way that you honor him because he preaches and rules and leads you well. And so what Paul's wanting to see is that there would be a joy here, that he wouldn't just become, the pastor wouldn't become a statistic. The other thing he talks about is fair compensation. So let's talk about that. How does Paul... Uh, unraveled this argument of fair compensation. He does two things. He talks from the Old Testament and the New Testament. He has two different quotes uh, to describe and and really to bring to head his point. And so in the Old Testament, he says, he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, which says, "'You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain.'" What on earth does that mean? It seems so abrupt here in 1 Timothy chapter 5, and guess what? It's even abrupt in the context that he quotes it from. It's even abrupt in Deuteronomy 25 verse 4. So what is he saying? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 25, he is quoting um, from Moses. Moses, in the, verse, in the first four verses of chapter 25 of Deuteronomy, he's actually saying what the law requires. He's saying, if there's if there's a, a lawsuit against another person, this is how you handle it. This is how you walk through something that uh, would, would be judicial. And so then, and then the next verse is after verse four of Deuteronomy chapter twenty-five. It's about a kingsman redeemer. And we remember back in Ruth when we worked through Ruth back in the fall, the kingsman redeemer was someone that if your um, if if your brother died, you were to marry his wife. So that you could help her care for her land and her property. And I've always told my brother, if you marry my wife after I die, I will haunt you for the rest of your existence. I don't even know if that theologically works, but I'll ask God if I can haunt my brother if that happens. But this is what a Kingsman Redeemer did. He would um, take over the land. And so here you have... You have a lawsuit and how to handle a lawsuit, and then you have what a, how a kingsman redeemer would live, and then in the middle of that you have, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. So how do we figure out what this actually means? Here's the good news. When you find something in the Old Testament that's confusing, what you do is you go to the New Testament. You let the New Testament interpret the Old Testament. Oftentimes, what people often do when they read Scripture, they let the Old Testament interpret the New Testament. But here, you, this is one of those examples. You let the New Testament interpret the Old Testament. And so, ironically, the same writer in First Timothy, Paul, he also writes in First Corinthians where he talks about what this passage and what this little tiny verse actually means. So let me show you this real quick, 1 Corinthians 9, and this will help us understand what he means here in 1 Timothy. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 7, Paul says this. Who ser- serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who, or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not, here it is, muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does he not does that certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow and hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share, is it rightful claim on you? Do not we even more. And what Paul is saying here is, listen, here you have one who's a farmer who's harvesting the, the, um, his, his, his field. And what's being brought in, he says, is this for the cattle? Is this for the animals or is this for us? Well, certainly the one who harvests this should gain from that which he is harvesting. This is a very natural thing that he would share in the crop that he is involved in working. That's what he's saying. You guys hearing that? The pastor is the one that he's using this analogy for. You shall not muzzle an ox. He's saying, listen, it's very natural that one who is working hard and when he sees fruit to benefit from that fruit. And so in other words... If the church is being blessed, then the pastor should also be blessed. And in the same way, the pastor should feel the tension of the church when the church feels tension. I've, I've worked, my wife and I, um, we, had a, we worked in a ministry prior to coming here. And one of the pastors got really greedy and ended up embezzling money uh, after we left. It was a really tragic, tragic thing that we saw. But the church was struggling financially. And it was when we first got there. And it was down. It had started dying and decreasing in size. And it was down to probably 70 people. That pastor was making $80,000 a year. And he lived in a free house. And he was rolling in it. The church was in tremendous debt. Couldn't pay anything. Somehow it worked. And then... After we left, he embezzled more money. And it just shows how corrupt this thing can be if we're not careful. But what he was not doing, is not feeling the tension that the church felt. He was fine. Everyone else was suffering. This is nuts. Um, But what you have in the New Testament, and what Paul is advocating is this. When the church is being blessed, then pay the pastor well. Pay the pastor accordingly. And so what, what you see next is Paul then uses the Old Testament and then he uses the New Testament. He uses a quote from Luke 10, verse 7. The laborer deserves his wages. Now, this is a quote from Jesus himself. Notice what he says when, when Paul says this in verse um, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, he says, verse 18, the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Notice what he does. He quotes from the Old Testament and he quotes from Jesus, and he says, The Scripture says, in other words, he's saying, Jesus' words are scripture. Isn't that encouraging to see? See, Jesus' words are scripture. He's equating the same, Old Testament and New Testament. So what Paul does is to back up his point. He says, in the Old and the New Covenant, we see one who serves the Lord should be honored well. Moses and Jesus, that's pretty good company, right? To back up this point, this guy should be honored well. Tragically, there are some denominations who hold to a standard of pay him poorly to keep him humbly. Uh, keep, him, keep his wages low, but his demands high. And that's why I don't think it's shocking when we see that 70, 70% say they're unpaid and 50% would say they would leave if they had something else to do. Because the church will sin against them and every time there's a pay period. And I want to balance this out for, for, for one thing, all right? If you remember back in 1 Timothy 3, when Paul does lay out the qualifications for an elder, what's the one thing that he says in verse, in chapter, in verse 3 of chapter 3? He's not a lover of money. Thank you, Ben. He's not a lover of money. He's saying, look, we don't want this guy to be greedy. We don't want this guy to fleece the flock. And so what the goal is, that you would find a guy who's not a lover of money. That he is not a guy who, he was a guy who would preach no matter what he would get paid. That's who you want to find. And then when you find that guy, see if he meets the other qualifications. And then make him an elder. And then when he's an elder, pay him well. Pay him what he deserves. But find a guy who will do it for nothing. That's what you want to find. Find a guy who's not a lover of money. But when you do find that guy, let him reach the qualifications and then pay him well. Don't don't treat him as pay him poorly to keep him humble. We don't want you to be greedy, so we won't pay you anything. That's going to help, right? But here's, here's what he's he wants to um, move to. So he goes from. How, how do you move from how to address a guy who's ruling and preaching well? You take care of him. You rule him. Uh, you you, um, you uh, honor him by how he rules the congregation, how he preaches, and how he teaches. You respect him, and then you compensate him well. And then what he does next? He says, "In the same church, young Timothy, you'll have guys who do this well, and then you have guys who don't do it well at all. So what do you do with guys who don't do this well at?" Verse 19, it says this, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you To keep these rules without uh, uh, prejudging, do nothing from partiality. Now, here's what I want you to see. The worst thing that you can assume about a pastor is that he is untouchable. The the worst thing that you can uh, assume about a pastor is that he's somehow closer to God because of his role. I, I, I just get so tired every time I go somewhere for a family event. Everyone gets around the table. It's family reunion time. It's Christmas. Let's pray. Who do they always look to? Pastor, right? Do you want to bless this meal? Because your holy words that flow from your mouth will will help us eat this food so much better. And actually, it's going to taste better if you pray for it. So, man, just pray. And would you just bless this meal? And it just seems like, you know, I've got this little connection with God. It's not the case at all. And so I'm not above any temptation or any sin that any of you are. All right, I just want to say that Uh, on the flip side uh, with a pastor who is faithfully preaching and teaching, uh, what you'll find in that is a guy who is not necessarily liked by every person. All right, I want you to see that because there's going to be a lot of charges against a guy who is faithful to preach God's word and who makes tough biblical decisions. He's not going to be liked by everybody. I'm from Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. There's a lot of people from Rocky Mountain here today, and they'll know me as Tuggy. They know me as Tuggy. And um, Tuggy is the nicest guy in the world. Everybody loves Tuggy. The, the skinny, redhead guy makes everybody laugh and makes everybody feel... He's always, you know, always a funny guy. Everybody likes, everybody likes Tuggy, but Pastor Ben, he's mean, Right? Pastor Ben has to make decisions that are hard. Pastor Ben has to call people to sin and call people to repentance. Pastor Ben has to weigh out biblical truth besides emotions and feelings and how this person feels about this situation. Pastor Ben has to make really tough decisions. So guess what? When Pastor Ben walks in the restaurant, sometimes people look at Pastor Ben and they get mad. They roll their eyes. They, oh, there he is again, right? That old jerk, you know? And that's, that's how I'm seen sometimes, unfortunately. And there's been people that I've had to discipline. And I've seen them in the community, and it's awkward. Hey, how's it going, right? Still hating me? Good, all right, you know. <laughs> kind of that, that way. And look, I don't, I don't think it's the goal of a pastor to be unliked. You don't want to be the guy who's unliked. You want to be the guy who wants to be liked in some way. But you want a guy who, has, who makes decisions that are sometimes unpopular because the Bible convicts him to do so. And so what Paul does is say, Listen, not everything about this guy is going to be true that someone says. So when we proceed with this guy who is, who maybe has a fault against him, let's do it with caution. And so how does Paul talk about this issue? He says, well, let's talk about the New Testament and the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the concept was if you were to bring any type of judicial charge to another person, you were to do it with witnesses. In the same way in Jesus, in Matthew 18, what what Jesus tells his disciples, when you bring a charge against someone, you have to take witnesses. And so Paul takes two things from the Old Testament and from the words of Jesus. Both he calls scripture, and he says, when you charge someone in this capacity, you have to do it with witnesses. And so he's saying, let's not entertain, though, Everything that is brought up about this particular person. Let's make sure that it is clearly checked. That's what he's saying. That's what we need multiple people doing this. I remember um, I, I, I was my first church I ever worked at, I was a youth pastor. And I had a lady in the church that wanted my job before I got there. And so day one, I move in and she, I have the job that she wanted. And she hated me from day one. And she would make up rumors about me in the church. It was terrible. I was, I was very gung-ho about this church. I was 21 years old. I was like, it's going to be awesome. Everyone's going to love Jesus and then love me in turn because I serve Jesus. And we're just going to sing about Jesus, and we're going to evangelize in Jesus' name. 're all going to be on the same page. And I was, my world was turned upside down. And I remember she made up a rumor about me because I always had this rule and I still hold to this rule. I don't ever ride in a car alone with someone who's not my wife. I don't, I don't meet with a female unless my wife knows about it. It's on my calendar, and there's a door always open when I meet with it. It's just important stuff. And I always, even 21 years old, I was doing that. And I had, a high school, I had high school girls that would try to come to my house and say, hey, stop by. I'd say, no, you can't go. Go, go, go away. Right? I was mean. Right? And I remember one time I was riding in a car with my sister, and this lady saw me, and then she told the whole church that I was riding around in the cars. Car, I was riding around in cars with high school girls, and I wasn't above reproach in my ministry. And I was like, that was my sister, fool, right? You know, like, you didn't even know the situation. And so, what he's saying is, look, for a, a, guy in, a guy who's a leader in the church, people, everyone's going to be watching you, waiting for you to make a mistake. So make sure the charge that you're bringing to them is legit. Make sure it's being calculated. Make sure multiple people have seen this. And it's not just your silly mistake. And so this is a highly visible role. But Paul says, in this case, what happens if they really do sin? What, what, what do we do if they really do sin? He says, in verse 20, As those who persist in sin rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God, Christ Jesus, and the elect angels, I charge you to keep keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. See, look, we're not going to treat this guy any different than we would anyone else, but one thing that we are going to do, because this role is so visible, we're not going to hide his sin from the church. I'm not saying every sin needs to be forecasted every Sunday. But he is saying, in the, in the context of this could be a sin that could be damaging for the gospel, it could disqualify him from his role. So we have to make this sin public. I have a dear friend of mine who's a pastor of a church that's much larger than our church. He has a plurality of elders. He has multiple elders, multiple staff. And not long ago, one of his elders was found in a pretty horrific sin. He was living a double life where he was having multiple affairs on his wife with prostitutes. And he was doing it for over a year in the church. And he had, I think they counted up, at least 40 interactions with different prostitutes. And this is a large, pretty healthy congregation. And the church is devastated. Now, one thing they could do, they could say, we could just hide this thing. We could just blow it under the rut and just not sink. But you know what they did? They, when this guy ran off when, it was, when he was found, they brought it before the congregation. Can you imagine how painful that would be? This is your first Sunday, right? This is what you hear. By the way, one of our pastors has issues with prostitutes. Let's pray, right? No. They went, they went at it and explained it thoroughly. They covered it and they said, look. This guy's in sin. We don't know if he's even a believer because he's not repentant in this area. We're going to try to bring him around repentance, but he's not going to be on staff here anymore. Hey, we've actually asked him to go to a different church so he can get help and get accountability. We're going to help and provide him for counseling. And they, they kind of went on and talked about how they're going to help this guy who's in sin, but he's not going to be up here anymore, guys. We just wanted to let you know that. We're not going to embarrass the gospel in this way. We're not going to, we're not, we're not going to tolerate sin in Jesus' name. We're not going to cover this up. So on one hand, you do have to protect the reputation of an elder. You have different things said about them. You have to, you have to count it in with, with, factor it in with other people and what they say. And then the other, on the other hand, you also have to protect the name of Jesus in the gospel. And so you see this tension here in this passage, but notice what else Paul indicates. Verse 22, to not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Verse 23. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and for frequent ailments. The sins of some men are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not, that cannot remain hidden. Now, everybody wants to know what verse 23 means, and it is abrupt, it is strange. I will just go ahead and tell you, all right? The pastor's role is difficult, all right? That's that's what he's saying. Young Timothy is not necessarily sick of a stomach virus, because I don't know anyone who's sick of a stomach virus and goes to the doctor and they say, you know what you need? Wine. That'll help your stomach virus. That is not what he's saying. He's actually talking about the stress. In context, what you see is young Timothy is a timid guy already. And he is dealing with confronting sins of elders. We see this all throughout 1 Timothy. He's telling certain guys to park it. He's telling certain guys to leave. He's handing certain people over to Satan. That's, that's actually the language of 1 Timothy. And so what Paul is saying, look, if you're stressed out, have a cold one for crying out loud, Right? That's what he's saying, right? And look, I can't say it any other way but that. He's like, look, if the guy needs a cold one, let him have It's a tough job. Like, look, he's not to be mastered by this thing. He's to have a little wine. That's what it says. He's like, not to be a drunkard. He's not to have a reputation of needing this thing. But look, if he needs a cold one, let him have one. It's a tough job, all right? That's what it means, all right? Verses before and verses after, what do they mean? Now, here's what he's saying. The qualifications of chapter 3. Are minimal qualifications for an elder. All right? First Timothy chapter three, these are minimal qualifications. What he's adding now to the list, not necessarily of qualifications, but he's adding warnings. He's saying, "Look, some people's sins are conspicuous. Some people can hide their stuff better. Some people, their good works, you see show up later. So what is he advocating here? We should know the guy. Before he's made in this role. Look, if if this guy is gonna be attacked from all angles by so many different people, if this guy can teach and rule well, we gotta know this guy well. We gotta walk through life with this guy. We gotta see him go through hurt and pain. We gotta see him go through triumph and victory. We've got to have a relationship with this guy. A, A lot of churches, they pick pastors based on their resumes. Oh, your resume says this. Oh, you like, this guy likes you. I'll call him and see if he likes. But, but what Paul is actually saying, it's really good to know the guy that we're bringing in to this role. We gotta know this guy. And I gotta say, most of what we do here at Integrity is the way that we train our leaders is not so much a curriculum, although we do add curriculum, but it's more about, let's sit down and have lunch with this guy. Let's, let's go out and shoot guns with this guy, right? Let, let's, go, let's, go and have, have, let's go and apply verse 23 with this guy, right? Let's get to know this guy, how he works, how he interacts with others. Let's get in this guy's life and figure him out. Because that, to me, is more important than any kind of class or any kind of seminar. It's getting in this guy's life. And most of the way, I even train our staff. It's rare that I sit down with Jake and say, here's all the administrative things that we need to work on. Jake's our church administrator. What I, don't, what I do more is like, hey, how, how's, how's your wife? How's Mitzi doing? How are you guys doing with this prior conversation that you have? Matt, our worship guy, it's rare that we talk about music. Most of what we talk about is life and doctrine. What do you believe about God? How are you living it out? How are you living your life out missionally? Because I want to know this guy. I with this guy, other pastor, other elder. When we sit and meet, most of the time it's about what's going on in our families, what's going on in our lives. How are we engaging our wives biblically? How are we walking through the gospel with our families? And that to me is more important. How well we know this guy. And so this isn't a game, that's what Paul's saying. This, there's casualties here. If we don't know our pastors and our leaders well, we're hurting ourselves. If we don't honor them well, We're sinning against God. And so the hope that we have, though, when we see all these staggering and scary statistics, Jesus plants his church. Jesus grows his church. Jesus sometimes closes the doors of certain churches, but the hope that we have is this. Jesus Christ is a senior pastor here at Integrity Church. And all I am and all Scott is and all the other staff, all of us who are leaders of this congregation, we're all under shepherds of Jesus. And so if we submit to Jesus well and we obey him well and we follow him well, then we will lead well. In the same way, you as a congregation, the way that you respond to the leaders that God has placed over you is honestly the way that you respond to Jesus himself. And so if you love Jesus well, and you serve Jesus well, and you look to the cross well in your life, and you gospel one another well, then it's just natural that you would want to honor those who rule over you and serve you in preaching and teaching you well. And so that's our hope, that we would be submissive to King Jesus today, me and you this morning. God help us. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray this morning that you would help us as we honor you, our senior pastor.